Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Matt Hancock's time as Health Secretary is over, but the fallout from the Matt Hancock affair has just begun. We're going to be exploring the government's approach to ministerial standards, to appointments, to transparency, and as a new IFG paper on this very subject is published, we'll look at how the ministerial code, the rules governing those standards, can be overhauled. We're then going to turn our attention to the intray that awaits Sajid Javid, Hancock's replacement as the Secretary of State for Health. Javid has been around the cabinet block before and has previously held the top ministerial job in a number of departments, but as intrays go, it's a pretty daunting one. The IFG's health policy expert will talk us through it. So, joining me today in our virtual studio is IFG Senior Fellow, Kath Haddon. Hi, Kath. Hello, Bronwyn. We're also joined by Alex Thomas, who leads our civil service work. Hi, Alex. Hello again, Bronwyn. And I'm delighted as well to be joined by Paul Harrison, a former special advisor at the Department for Health, former number 10 spokesman, and now senior counsel at Lexington Communications. Hi, Paul. Has the past week left you missing the department? In a strange way, yes, but in most ways, absolutely not. We'll dig into some of that. Thanks very much indeed for being with us. So let's start with Matt Hancock's resignation and the questions that this whole episode raises. Paul, I wondered if you could start it for us by giving us a sense of what it's like to be a government press handler when stories like this break. It's difficult because the sort of your horizon window how far you think you can see into the future goes from normally you know a couple of weeks or maybe several months if you're if you're lucky to being a matter of hours and you make necessarily snap decisions hoping but with no real confidence that they'll last the test of time and then a lot of those windows are dictated by other events so it's not just the fact that the you know the newspaper editor or the, the journalist has called you and said we're going to publish this uh, assuming there's nothing you can do about it there's you know the fact that so the story breaks overnight and then there's the usual government lobby briefing where the pm spokesman is essentially asked for you know his view on whether matt hancock's position is tenable whether or not he's got confidence in him and so that's sort of your first arbitrary deadline where you have to come up with something you know are we going to try and brazen this out or are we going to you take a decision to for the secretary of state to resign is he going to take that decision you know that's the first one and so those sort of those events those those arbitrary points of decision come really thick and fast and there's something quite uncomfortable for the advisors but certainly for for the the people in post for the elected politicians about just being in the full glare of scrutiny i mean it's you know it may well be deserved and it's a function of the democracy that we live in but it's not a great deal of fun and it doesn't feel like it if anything that sounds like an understatement it is getting the whole blowtorch of public opinion and you put it in a very interesting way that you just don't know what's going to happen even hour by hour for 24 hours matt hancock didn't quit and the line from downing street was that the matter was closed do you think that was a misjudgment by the Prime Minister or just a holding position? I think it actually just speaks sort of temperamentally to, you know, a, a bit of the PM's makeup, really. He doesn't like seeing people, as he sees it, kind of forced out. Um, he likes to, and I think there is a little bit of, struggle to say this eliquently, but sort of a, a bit of wait and seery in his in his makeup. So, you know, the cost of waiting and seeing in this case was to say, yes, I have full confidence and, you know, an apology has been made. And as far as I'm concerned, you can move on. 
that's that's the price of of waiting and seeing in this case. Uh, and clearly, it, it it wasn't tenable. And I actually think uh, Matt Hancock has probably done his reputation at least some favours by eventually deciding to to go because I think it's it's sort of quite clear that you know this is something that the public notice. We've had a, a kind of a dry run of it without being glib uh, in terms of Barnard Castle, and and I think there's a there's a big incongruity between you know some of the things that people know and feel that they've had to put up with in their own lives to try and keep us you know, as safe as we can be within the rules uh, over the last years, slightly longer, and and what they see as the behaviour of, of the people who are in charge. So you know it was a sensible decision in the end. Kath, Matt Hancock's gone because he broke the COVID rules he designed, but you've been worried about many aspects of this story. Yeah, obviously it was the the breach of the COVID rules that was the the thing that that triggered the resignation because, as you say, he was he was the person that actually signed them into law in a lot of cases, but he was also the person that was supposed to front part of the government's response of of keeping them in place. But there were other questions about this whole affair and questions that you know might have prevented it happening in the first place. I don't mean that the affair, it, um, the romantic relationship starting, but I mean. Colodangelo's position in government. It's, I mean, it's been reported that she was initially an unpaid advisor uh, to Matt Hancock. So she wasn't a special advisor, which is a position that has a contract, has a code of conduct, clear rules about uh, their, uh, the limits of what they can do, because they're a much more political position alongside the more impartial civil service. So there's questions about that, that appointment. Was it appropriate? Uh, what was she there to do? What access did she have to the department? What papers did she see? Why Hancock wanted her? But then she went on to get a job as a non-executive director in the department. This is uh, These are people who sit on the department's board. They're supposed to give challenge to the department and to the minister to think about the sort of capability of the department, how it's delivering policies, how it's sort of operating as a as an organisation. So there's, again, big questions there about what merit she had for the role, what was her skill set, what was her experience, because it sounds more like her role was basically to advise Matt Hancock personally, which isn't what a non-executive director is supposed to do. So how she got that, we just don't know. I'm fascinated by the way you just described this. Let's just start with the aides. Alex, this all sounds incredibly murky and kind of slippery and, and rules sometimes, but ministers can dodge them if they want. What is what is your take on this? Is it really this murky, this far into the 21st century? It is murky. And I mean, everything Kath has said is right. It is murky, but I think it's worth unpicking some of the different things that go on here. It's completely fine. It's good that ministers are able to take advice from a wide range of sources. Some of that will be official advice. Some of it will be lobby groups. Some of it will be people they you know, know from, from their personal life. That's fine. But I think the distinction then comes when uh, that person is being given an official position or, crucially, access to official information within government. And I think that's where we get into the realm of conflicts of interest or uh, uncertainties over how decisions are being taken and then questions about the accountability for those decisions and the accountability for the advice that is given on those decisions. And so while Kath is right that I suspect and uh, in some cases, you know, know, as we've seen, uh, that informal advisors are brought into 
these uh, sorts of um, positions. It shouldn't really happen in that way. And if a minister wants to take informal, political, personal or policy advice, it should be sort of outside that official system of official information, if you if, if you like. One of the things I think we've seen is almost a sort of Paul uh, uh, was very eloquent, but but suggested he wasn't expressing himself very well. I'm going to use another horrible phrase of sort of Ned washing, if you like. So uh, what? I've never heard of Ned washing. Using <laughs> using non-executive directors and the post of non-executive directors to bring people in who aren't really fulfilling that function. So one of the things we've written about, have talked about a bit, is uh, is is almost legitimising these informal advisors by bringing them in through uncertain process to become, say, a non-executive director. And Kath's right, we have a role, it's a special advisor. Paul was one for for bringing in that sort of advice. The non-executive director is a different role. Sometimes misunderstood, but we can come on to talk about that if it's of interest. I think part of the problem is there's a gap between the civil service appointments that are regulated by the Civil Service Commission, and there's a process on that, it's underpinned by statute, and the public appointments that are regulated by the Commissioner for Public Appointments. And this murky area of pseudo-special advisors, non-executive directors, doesn't fall under either of those uh, sort of regimes to make sure that the appointments are proper and open to fair competition and so on. And that seems to me to be at the heart of this problem. Right, I do want to come on to Ned's in a second. Ned washing is so fabulous, a bit of Whitehall jargon. I think we will keep I just it. made it up, though, I must confess. I'm not sure. Okay, okay. no, 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 Alex, you get, the, you get the prize of the week. Oh, that's, that's just fabulous. Paul, um, you were, as Alex said, a special advisor. What do you make of, of what is seeming in this description to be a real lack of definition about how people are appointed and what they do? So I'm going to try and inject a note of optimism, which is not something I don't I think I've ever tried before, but... Um, I think not taboo. There's there's something almost quite pleasing about sort of the extent of the outcry here. I think tells you something quite reassuring about where we are as a country, which is that we are sort of unimaginatively uh, non-corrupt. So you know this is uh, when it comes to. The way that government is run, the vast, 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 vast majority of uh, people that ministers take advice from, they have absolutely no right to choose. So there, are, there can be no allegations of cronyism. When you know, uh, I worked at the Department for Health, the the department itself was something like four thousand uh, civil servants. I think it was NHS England was bigger still, sort of six or seven thousand, something like that. There was Jeremy and uh, Jeremy Hunt, who was then Secretary of State, a couple of ministers, two, sometimes three special advisors. And the only people that Jeremy had chosen, you know, poor man, uh, one of them was me. So, you know, the, the, the sort of the numerical weight of that stuff, I think, does show you that, you know, despite the fact there has rightly been, you know, very significant concerns about the way that this person, given her relationship with Matt Hancock, was appointed yeah, this is not, we don't live in an administration where a new government is elected and then spends its time clearing out people who were 
any government, I mean, clearing out people who were, you know, sort of part of the old regime. We have an impartial sense of continuity through the civil service who are the vast, as I say, majority of the people who who give this sorts of advice. It's not like an American administration where, you know, the new president comes in, fires all the ambassadors and puts people who are sort of campaign donors in to become, you know, their representative in London. Uh, you know, there's a great deal more continuity than that. And in a way, as I say, I think the outcry tells you something that, you know, despite the fact this is in the grand scheme of things, I think a, a relatively small, at least numerical part of the system. And I would actually argue that Ned Stone have a great deal of power, but, but we can talk about that later, maybe. There has been a really big public response. And I think that tells you that not only are we sort of massively averse, rightly, to corruption in this country, but I don't think it happens in a... In a, in a huge and systemic way. All right, case for optimism made. But I, while I agree with you that the language of corruption, other than you know perhaps some city city councils, isn't widely used in Britain, I think it does seem to me there is a real danger here that this comes to seem, or some of these appointments come to seem essentially um, corrupt in the sense of self-serving and dodging uh, public process. Alex, I just want to bring you, without, without setting aside Paul's optimism, just to, just back on this question of Neds and the government's intention, this government's intentions for them, because we had some comments from Michael Gove in his recent big paper on civil service reform about wanting some changes in in, in Neds and what they did for the government while sitting on those boards. What do you make of all that? Yeah, and I think Paul is right that NEDs in and of themselves, non-executive directors, are not particularly powerful. I think in some of the reporting around this story, there was an understandable uh, sort of confusion about what departmental boards and the people who sit on them are actually for. Uh, in a you know in a business in the private sector, a board is holding the chief executive to account uh, and uh, uh, has a sort of propriety function as well as a setting direction function. That's not really the case in government for the you know obvious and completely legitimate reason that ministers are elected with a mandate to get things done and the critical relationship is between the minister and the permanent secretary and the senior team in the in the civil service that's where real uh, power lies if you like and it's on the secretary of state and the ministerial team to set the policy direction for um, the department so that leaves departmental boards that have existed for quite a long time but were revived and sort of grown by Francis Maud in status in a sort of slightly ambiguous position, which is they're not setting direction, but they are digging into some of the core programs and delivery bits of work that the department is doing to provide assurance to to chair the audit and risk committee, for example. So some of that sort of backroom proper delivery and sort of accountability uh, happens, but it's not in the way that I think many people imagine. For me, the main value of non-executives, and I think this is what comes to the Gove plans, was actually outside the board, um, the formal board setting, but offering the big programs and projects that a department might be doing, whether that's, you know, universal credit in the Department for Work and Pensions or, you know, future farming in DEFRA or any of these sort of big things, reaching into those programs and using their expertise to say, actually, you're going to come a cropper if you don't invest this much in this, you know, in, you know, spend this much money on this or manage these risks in that way. And that's why I think it's important that these NEDs do have their own kind of, you know, ballast of expertise, whether that's commercial or wider public sector or elsewhere, um, because otherwise they're not, they're just not providing that function. And this comes yeah. back to the NED watching. If you're appointing your mates, then you're probably not appointing the best people to do those jobs. And you're using the, the NED role for a function it wasn't really designed to 
team. Okay, let's pivot from that to the wider issue of standards in government. And it's not not a very extensive pivot, you might think. Uh, We've got a new paper out today which calls for an overhaul of ministerial code and sets out how that should be done, how it should be improved. Kath, a quick one to start. Tell us what the ministerial code is. Well, the code is basically the rule book for ministers. It originally started as a sort of collection of the, um, you know, a guide to ministers on the various processes of government, but also a sort of instruction from the prime minister about how he wanted his ministers to operate. Uh, But since it was first published in, in the early 1990s, it's become much more almost a sort of constitutional authority on what are the rules that govern how ministers should operate. And so brings in lots of different conventions about ex- expectations of, of within our constitution, what is right, what is wrong, and, and so forth. And it, it sits alongside other documents like the Cabinet Manual, which is a sort of constitutional guide to the working of governments, and then the various responsibilities that ministers have to Parliament. Uh, you know, obviously, there's there's responsibilities under common law, there's all sorts of different things. But, but the ministerial code is kind of the the definitive guide for ministers about what they can and can't do. Okay. And so do you think Boris Johnson has any interest in overhauling it? Well, he said he's going to. He said that the code would be revised in due course. But what we often see when codes are, they're, they're issued every time a new prime minister takes office. And generally, there's quite a lot of continuity about the contents of them. And some of the things within it are considered quite fixed and unchanging because they're very you know, fundamental constitutional principles. But normally it gets revised when a scandal has occurred and, you know, there's some changing to the wording. Um, and it, it, there's a good chance that that's more likely what he intended. We've seen uh, in recent, you know, weeks and months, obviously various criticisms of, of the government's investigations under the ministerial code. So there's undoubtedly things that they want to uh, look again at and see whether or not they can sharpen the language, particularly this all came about after Greensill. So questions about whether they'd improve lobbying. But what we're saying is that there needs to be a much more fundamental improvement of the ministerial code and the whole system that surrounds it. So improving the way in which it's enforced and its constitutional status, as well as some changes to what's actually in the code. So just tell us a bit more about that constitutional status. We've called for giving it a statutory footing, haven't we? What, what does that actually mean? Yeah. So at the moment, the code basically, um, it's, you know, it exists as a matter of convention because previous prime ministers have issued it. You know, subsequent prime ministers do the same. And similarly, the contents of it um, in a lot of cases are based on conventions um, in our constitution. That's still important, even when you've got a fully codified constitution, conventions, ex- expectations of behavior and so forth are still important. But when you compare it to, uh, we've already mentioned the special advisors have a code of conduct, the civil service have a code. And we saw um, about 10 years ago, um, those codes given a statutory uh, backing, which wasn't basically putting them all into legislation and putting all the specifications of everything that can and can't be done onto law books. What it was, was just saying that there should be these codes, that they must exist And also in those cases to say that they should abide by um, the standards in public life, these principles, the Nolan principles, as we call them, that talk about integrity, honesty, leadership and so forth. Some of the things we've been talking about as to whether or not Matt Hancock breached them. 
So what we're saying is that give it the similar kind of constitutional status that there must be a ministerial code so that no prime minister could just say, actually, I don't think we'll bother with one this time. Paul, I'd love your take on this. In your time in government, was the ministerial code held up as the gospel or something that ministers uh, were um, taken through and first appointed and then and then kind of set aside, or was it actually something to be dodged? Well, I mean, there were a number of kind of quite practical examples of, you know, trying to think of a good way to, to characterise the, the whole time on a, I assume, family podcast, but the kind of sexminster allegations all happened uh, under, under Theresa May when I was at number 10. But certainly... You know, there were lots of allegations that, you know, if if proven to be true, would sort of indicate that ministers at the time, former ministers, uh, had, 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 you know, indulged in something that was sort of conduct unbecoming in a public office sort of thing. And, you know, and ultimately the decision had to be made where, you know, you can look at the example of, say, Damien Green, who was effectively deputy PM at the time, uh, Michael Fallon, who was defence secretary, you know, they you know, given the opportunity to resign, but but ultimately left their post because it was felt that that the allegations weren't weren't compatible really with with the conduct of their duties, and and sort of ultimately that's about the ministerial code. So it was used as, as an arbiter. I mean, the system itself is, you know, I I, um, I, I think all of the, the points that you're making in, in your report are, are really worth considering because the system itself is kind of a bit mad and kind of a bit medieval, and there have been lots of ways to, to to try and put that on a sort of more modern and acceptable footing. But one of the PM's, any PM's main power, aside from going on television saying things, is the power of patronage. So they get to appoint their ministers. And so there's an extent to which everybody is... And they get mocked. They get attacked as well. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So they can sort of. Uh, but then the system that that is supposed to regulate the conduct of the ministers is is ultimately overseen by the prime minister. So there isn't that sort of we've talked about it in terms of NEDs, but there isn't really that kind of external challenge. The PM decides based on advice, but decides ultimately if you have broken the ministerial code or not, which is often a quite subjective thing, and then. You know, and 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 then the the sort of the circus rolls around again. So it, it's slightly murky. The circus does roll on, as you said, down the centuries in terms of some of this behaviour. Alex, I was just wondering whether you think that there is more urgency now. This is a bit of a leading question, I guess, in that people, rightly, in my view, are less tolerant of this kind of thing. They want more transparency. They want um, to see people abiding by rules and indeed to know what those rules are. And this is kind of eternal behavior, if you like, coming up against modern desire for transparency, clear standards, clear ethics. Yes, I think that's the right point. And I, and I, I agree with you. I would add, uh, I mean, to, to your sort of zooming out across the decades and centuries point and picking, taking a cue from Paul's optimism earlier, I would add a note of optimism that, that there you know, have been a series of reforms that have improved transparency and given more assurance around some of these things in the sort of you know conduct sphere the nolan principles that kath mentioned earlier have become fairly well entrenched there there's an architecture of sort of oversight around them also things like party donations and i mean we there have been some stories about the government wanting to change the uh, remit of the electoral commission but that, that that's far more transparent far more uh, accountable than it than it was previously so progress has been made but i think as well as the sort of 
correctly higher expected standards that the public should demand. The rules are being tested uh, in a way that they haven't been tested in the last you know, 20, 30 years, maybe, because we have a prime minister who has proved that he is not does not consider himself bound by some of the normal constraints that his predecessors have. He's willing to hold on to ministers who've breached the ministerial code in fairly serious ways. And I think it's that lack of check on the sort of conduct of, of those who hold power over us that that, that is concerning. Can I, can I just ask you, Alex, I, I just channeling Paul's optimism, if, if you think of that, I was just wondering whether you thought, in fact, perhaps behaviour was getting better. I'm thinking actually of, uh, of, of um, Bill Clinton's lament when the Monica Lewinsky scandal broke. And he said, well, no one went after John Kennedy for those things. But actually the scrutiny, the public, um, you know, uh, attention and demand for better behaviour, perhaps that is having an effect. It may not, may not be, you know, enough effect um, uh, to keep things squeaky clean, but perhaps things are getting better. Yeah. And I think, of course, if you look over as I said, decades and centuries, things have definitely got better. I mean, compare our current uh, leaders to some of those from uh, 19th and early 20th centuries. It's incomparable as well. I also think government has opened up now. There's a, um, you were right to pick up on earlier on the sort of, you know, the British disease of um, cronyism and uh, networks and relationships, even uh, even if that's not sort of financial corruption, there's a, uh, there's an element of that there. And I think, well, there's a long way to go. It is it is better now, but it comes back to that being quite profoundly reliant on the uh, decisions of the Prime Minister. I'm not sure Damien Green or Michael Fallon would have resigned 20 or 30 years ago. I'm not sure they would have resigned under this Prime Minister. So that's the uh, that's the kind of uh, core of the concerns at the moment. I think they relate to the individual in that office, and there isn't enough architecture around that individual to, to make sure that behaviour is, is, is properly held to account. And I think that you've caught very well the element of discretion and prime ministerial discretion. That is one of the elements that bothers people about this. It's really up to that person in the end to say whether someone stays or not. Kath, I wondered whether you could just explain to us why uh, the legislation uh, that seems to speak to this kind of area, the misconduct in public office, for example, actually is not something that's invoked in this area. Um, well, actually, I mean, in terms of what we're talking about at the moment, I mean, it is quite lacking. Most of the ways in which uh, the government are governed by legislation retain to the powers that they've got, or refers to the powers that they've got. We know that there are problems in that. There's a lot more use of delegated legislation and so forth. But a lot of what we're talking about in terms of conduct in public office is actually more about expectations of behaviours, about expected um, co- the value that is attached to these particular codes. And actually, I mean, just picking up on what we just talked about, it's more about the arc. It's, it's not really about the way in which this stuff is articulated. Actually, the, the ministerial code, if you take it just as the way in which it's written, it is, you know, it is the highest possible standards. It talks about the even the appearance of a conflict of interest being a potential breach of the ministerial code. The problem is the architecture in enforcing it. And we've just been talking about the prime minister and the powers he's got. One of the things that we're really pushing for and have been since the latest advisor to the prime minister on the ministerial code, um, Lord Guite, was appointed, is that he should have the independent power to, to undertake investigations. As long as the prime minister is the one who decides, should we even look into this? then that means that you won't get the kind of transparency that we've been talking about that allows the public 
to judge whether or not they think this is an egregious breach and to, you know, the court of public opinion that we've been talking about in terms of Matt Hancock to, to play a role. You don't get the analysis of what actually went on in government. How, for example, was Gina Colodangelo appointed? Um, you know, why was Lex Greensill um, and David Cameron, why was David Cameron allowed to lobby in the way that he did? Those things can't be investigated unless somebody is allowed to do that. And if that decision lies with the prime minister, then you've got a sort of almost a closing off, as we saw attempted last Friday, where the prime minister can just say, I consider the matter closed, move on. And that's very frustrating for a system because it also hampers civil servants of being able to turn around and say, no minister, you can't do this because of the ministerial code. If ministers know that the prime minister might just back them and and no consequences will follow. Let's turn our attention to the new man at the helm of the Department for Health and Social Care, Sanjay Javid. He's been Home Secretary, Culture Secretary, Business Secretary and Chancellor, though not for very long. So he certainly ticks the box marked experience. But is that going to prepare him for this new role? We're joined now by Graham Atkins, IFG Associate Director and our resident health policy expert. Hi, Graham. Hi, Bowman. Good to have you with us. Graham, give me one word to describe Sajid Javid's intray. Extensive. Um, he's got quite a lot on. I think we could probably split it into the immediate challenges, the stuff we'll be dealing with in July and August, and then a series of bigger challenges for the rest of the year. So kind of right up front is is what is the government's COVID strategy? So he stood up in the comments and said that you know, Freedom Day was going ahead on July the 19th. But we still really need to know kind of what the strategy is for living with rising cases. What is the government's kind of plan, if any, to deal with possible vaccine escape? What's the role of test and trace when cases are higher? What are, what are schools going to do to continue with isolation, testing, etc.? So that's one challenge. We've also got the vaccination rollout. How is he going to keep up and accelerate that? How is he going to plan for booster jams at the end of the year? And then the other two kind of things that I think will be right at the top of his agenda is uh, who is going to be the next head of NHS England and Improvement. At the end of July, Sir Simon Stevens is setting down as the chief executive. Uh, formerly, the board appoints the chief executive of NHS England, but the health secretary has a veto who is normally heavily involved in the process. Obviously, Simon Stevens carved out a big independent role for himself in, in health policy under Jeremy Hunt and Matt Hancock. So Sajid Javid is going to be wanting to think about who wants to do that job and how it will work with them. And kind of last, but absolutely not least, Uh, Matt Hancock was really due to introduce a big NHS reform, probably the biggest NHS reform since Andrew Lansley's health and care bill in 2012 uh, in the Commons around this time. Now, most of that bill is, to a degree, politically uncontentious. The government can point to the fact that NHS England, the NHS, has drafted large parts of it. But there are some really controversial provisions in there about new powers of direction for the Secretary of State. So the, the... Kind of initial draft of the bill suggests that the health secretary will be able to issue more directions to NHS England and will have the ability to abolish arms length, arms length bodies through purely secondary legislation. So a lot of people are concerned about you know, this, this power grab. Uh, so I think at the top of Javid's head will be, you know, how, how is he going to get this through the Commons? Uh, is there anything he wants to change about the bill before it goes through? Um, and it's really worth saying as well, this really matters because for most of the NHS, they've been planning on the assumption that this bill passes before April 2022. So if it doesn't or if he makes changes to it, he needs to think about 
as how the NHS is going to going to cope um, with the, the new plan. Graham, thanks for that panorama. So, Paul, if you were advising the health secretary at this point, what would you say are the opportunities in this, and what are the danger points? So, not to kind of belabor this point, uh, but I think there are a couple of other things that I would stick in the in tray. This matters a lot across government, and it's happening later in the year. But uh, the comprehensive spending review is like is a really big deal for uh, for the Department of Health, particularly now, and it's something that you know that Sajid will understand from his, as you say, brief time as Chancellor and time in the Treasury. But there's a there's a really significant question about you know, aside from the operational challenge of COVID, what you do about a waiting list that is huge and growing people waiting sometimes in pain for operations that have been delayed on some occasions several times so what do you do to bring that down how much money do you think you need for it and there's a really you know politically significant question about whether or not personally Sajid thinks that there is space opportunity or any merit in pursuing a you know a significant seeming solution in terms of social care. So, you know, it's been a question that's been hanging over, uh, politicians said, for, for for decades now almost. But, you know, from the sort of first time of, of Blair's government, he talked about the, the idea of a, of a proper solution for social care. Uh, you know, it was the sort of Labour solution was trashed fairly opportunistically at the 2010 election by David Cameron, uh, called it a death tax. You, you know, people will remember what happened at the 2017 election and Theresa's attempt to solve the problem. Boris has still said he's committed to doing it. If so, how and how much money and how much tax? So, so I'd add those things as well. You know, I think politically, Sand is quite rightly making a virtue of something that's going to happen anyway. The unlocking is uh, is going to happen. It would have happened, I think, if uh, Matt had been still in post. You know, in part, it's a decision largely for Number Ten and its scientific advisors, but but still, so so there's that. But then I think you know the the big challenge, given that being health secretary is a big and complex job, the NHS spends a billion pounds every three days just to keep going. Is you know taking together sort of Graham's intro and, and my couple of additions, what you need to establish some kind of priority. You can't do everything at once. So what in that list do you think is really important? So do you judge that having a catch-up plan for cancer and making sure that people get hip operations is kind of second in the list uh, following just the, the stuff that you need to do to continue with pandemic management? Or is it something else? I think that's sort of the bit of advice that I would give first and foremost. What, Given we've got more things to do at once than we can possibly manage, what's most important? That's a really interesting way of putting it. Alex, what do you reckon on the um, the financial battles in this uh, and the battles with um, his successor as Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, because we've got the big uh, social care decision that Paul was just laying out for us and no entry signs apparently over some of the uh, previously theoretically attractive things like getting people's you know wealth in their houses or their, their own estates to contribute to the cost of their elderly care if they had such money uh, at the time they die. So no entry signs there. Um, rise over NHS pay perhaps to come. How, how sour do you think this is and how difficult is it to manage? It's it's incredibly difficult to manage. And that's why, I mean, Paul was right to highlight the, the importance of the spending review. For 
this government and as for previous conservative governments, there was a real need for them politically to neutralise the NHS, as it were. And that quite often came down to money and being able to tout large sums of money going into the NHS. Quite quite a lot of NHS administration and politics is about allocating money in the end. There's obviously a lot, a, a lot more to it, but that's really important. I would separate out slightly the kind of the battles for the NHS and wider health system budget from the questions that you were raising about social care. I think social care is an intractable problem that needs a solution. And it's important that the government uh, comes up with something, whether they will or not, we we shall see. It's, you know, along with planning reform and uh, uh, some of the other major political uh, headaches the government uh, will get when when politics unfreezes from the pandemic. We'll, we'll see whether they can come up with a with a plan. I would also just caution. I think there's a sort of optimism around from the fiscal hawks that Sajid Javid will import his uh, treasury discipline into the Department of Health and Social Care. I mean, departments have a funny sort of way of getting their tentacles into secretaries of state, and I wouldn't be surprised if he becomes a an advocate for, for spending on uh, on health as he is perfectly proper to do. That's the way the best decisions get made if secretaries of state are advocating there and fighting their uh, uh, fights for, for the departments that they lead. Kath, uh, Sajid Javid is a familiar name, uh, as we were discussing, despite being off the front bench for a while. Do, do you think ministers get better after a time on the, uh, the back benches? Yeah, I, I kind of have a feeling like they do. I mean, we've seen this very noticeably with Jeremy Hunt and Greg Clark, who both went from um, very senior um, ministerial positions into select committees and seemed very assured in their chairing of those select committees, their, you know, ability to get across the brief and to understand what they're wanting to do with it. And it, it's it's kind of like there's a confidence that comes from, from former ministers once they've been out of that fulcrum of, of power, out, you know, got out from the frying pan, had a bit of time to reflect. They realise the sort of confidence that perhaps they didn't always happen have when they were in the middle of the job. And I think that does make them better as ministers. Obviously, they can bring a lot of baggage with them from previous departments, their previous experience, and perhaps sometimes overconfidence. But we saw this with Ken Clark, who, you know, had numerous Secretary of State positions. And even he talked about the challenges of of moving into a new department and getting to know a whole new brief. But you understand what it is that you've got to do and um, how you can go about getting yourself up to speed. You understand how to run departments. You understand how Whitehall works. So so I do think that a former minister coming back, you know, has a good shot at being a successful Secretary of State. Yeah. Paul, you uh, will know Javid from government. Do you think he's different in style and approach to Matt Hancock? Yeah, and I think everybody, one of the reasons one of my pet theories this but one of the reasons why politics is actually interesting is because it's kind of indivisible from people's personalities and and that is interesting you know it's why we sort of it's actually why the press often fixate on aspects of of people's personality and their temperament when they cover stories it's it's an accessible way of doing it but it's also an interesting way of doing it so yeah i think he is temperamentally different i think you can't extract your personality from your ability to make decisions and you know people draw on their experience when uh you know when they confront problems and that's part of the reason that there's always been a debate about diversity in government right you know that's kind of you because you can't divorce you know the things that have happened to you in your life from the way you approach the things that you're confronted with i I think it i think it is really important i mean yeah there's no doubt i think that 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 matt and are temperamentally 
different. I think sort of one probably is a glass half full person and one is probably a glass half empty person, if you can be that crude in the characterization. But but yeah, I mean, there is a real interesting thing when it comes down to that that sort of personality theme that I'm unsuccessfully trying to to argue for here, which is, you know, I think by temperament, Sad is quite hawkish on things like, you know, deficits and the national finances and all that kind of stuff. And that's not just because uh, he was chancellor briefly and because he spent time in the treasury. It's also because, you know, he's got a background in private banking and, and all that sort of stuff. And he's a sort of Thatcherite conservative. That's how he kind of grew up. But, but, you know, as Alex says, you know, that is going to come into conflict with, the fact that he will see in real raw detail the kind of the operational strain that the NHS is under. And some of that strain can be lessened by money because money in the NHS is really a proxy for capacity because the NHS budget is largely used for paying staff. If you have more money, you can have more of them. You can have better facilities. And and so, you know, how that tension plays out will be really, really interesting. The Sajjan Matt show, as you've described it, just to be completely clear, which one were you saying was glass half full as a personality? Well, I deliberately didn't, but um, but, 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 but as you say, I think Matt is more of an optimist mm. uh, and Sajj is more of a pessimist. That, that, that may not still be true currently, but, yeah. um, right. but still. Okay, we'll have to see. And Graham, finally, just to wrap this up for us, Matt Hancock was health secretary at a quite astonishing time. What do you think his legacy is? Um, I think probably Hancock's biggest legacy will be undoing large parts of the Lansley Act when that bill eventually gets onto the statute. But, I mean, perhaps my, my pause was a bit revealing. I'd struggle to think of anything instantly to associate with Matt Hancock's leg- legacy of Department Health. Okay, well, I hope we're not left just with Dominic Cummings' um, eloquence to parliamentary committees on the subject of Matt Hancock. That's going to be it for this edition of Inside Briefing with enormous eloquence from Kath Haddon, Alex Thomas, Graham Atkins and Paul Harrison. Thank you for joining us very much. If you enjoyed this podcast, then head to IFG Live, our sister podcast channel. You can listen to my in-conversation event with Andy Haldane on his last day as Chief Economist at the Bank of England because coming out of a Monetary Policy Committee meeting. Do leave us a review. Remember to check out all our work at instituteforgovernment.org.uk, where you can find our new paper on the ministerial code and the advice we're setting out for Boris Johnson. Well, it's possible that the the by-election in Batman Spen going on as we're recording brushes all this stuff of the Matt Hancock affair, so to speak, out of the way. But I somehow think the things that we've been talking about today are going to be with us for a very long time. Thanks for joining us. Have a good weekend. 